very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview, you know what to do. Go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. It's time for you to give yourself the gift of truth. And a huge benefit that a lot of you are not taking advantage of is our forum. There's a lot of content and a lot of participation from people all over the world discussing everything that matters. So if you are a Veritas member, take advantage of this. And what if a solar storm, EMP, or financial collapse happened today? It is only a matter of time before a massive EMP or solar storm burst fries the U.S. electrical grid? Or how about the financial system, which is unsustainable? The grid will invariably go down. When that happens, how are you going to survive? In the United States today, we are completely and totally dependent on electrical power. Unless you are Amish or are part of a similar community, you probably have absolutely no idea how to survive in a world without electricity. This is why we're bringing a veteran of this radio program back. Tonight's special guest is Matthew Stein, right now on Veritas. Matthew Stein is a design engineer, green builder, and author of two best-selling books, When Disaster Strikes, a comprehensive guide to emergency planning and crisis survival, and When Technology Fails, a manual for self-reliance, sustainability, and surviving the long emergency. Stein is a graduate of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, where he majored in mechanical engineering. He has appeared and is a repeat guest on national TV and radio. He is an active mountain climber, serves as a guide and instructor for blind skiers, has written several articles on the subject of sustainable living, and is a guest columnist for the Huffington Post. And we have a more detailed bio on our website. To learn more about Matthew Stein and his work, visit his website at whentechfails.com and mattstein, M-A-T, stein.com. And directly from the High Sierra Mountains of Truckee, Northern California, near Lake Tahoe, I would like to welcome Matthew Stein. Hello, Matt, and welcome back to Veritas. How are you? Oh, I'm really excellent today. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Mel. 
really appreciate it. It's always my pleasure, especially I think about you continuously, Matt, because so many things are happening, not only in the United States, but around the world. When I think of Ebola, and we're going to talk about that too, when I think of, of an EMP, solar storms, uh, what's happening today in Ferguson, Missouri, even riots can can bring the grid down from a local community all the way to nationwide, if that, that uh, those riots expand like a virus nationwide. Why is it so important to discuss all of this right now, Matt? Well, I think that humanity on the whole is getting that this planet is in trouble. And I think that people intuitively, you know, you saw the, the huge success of Doomsday Preppers show on TV. You've seen, uh, there's a wonderful book called Blessed Unrest by uh, Paul Hawken, where there's something like 2 million independent organizations that have sprung up on our planet that are dedicated to social and ecological change in the planet. So I think what's happening is that humanity knows that we're stressing our world, that the growth and consumption habits and, and patterns of business as usual are stressing our planets and you know causing record record numbers of, of plant and animal extinctions. So we just intuitively know that we're in trouble and that keeping up what we've been doing is going to soil the nest and take it all down around us. What we don't know and what nobody really knows is exactly what combination is going to cause collapse and if this collapse is going to be a long-term cascading fall downward, or if it's going to be a big black swan event, such as a solar storm or EMP, where, where things just fall apart almost instantly. Like, you know, basically, in, in, you could see in a week's time the, the entire country or planet being plunged into chaos from a big black swan event. So nobody knows the details, but I think we're really all getting that we're headed for that wall. We're like in a high-speed train going 100 miles an hour down the tracks. And if anything, instead of putting the brakes on, they're putting the foot on the gas pedal and saying, don't worry, it's going to be okay. But we know that around the corner, somewhere not far down the path, there's the end of the line and there's a brick wall or a cliff that we're going to go off of. And, and yet we're just speeding happily along, pretending it's going to be all okay. Matt, I understand that small solar storms strike our planet every year that the most recent extreme solar storm hit the Earth in 1921, and the one before that struck in 1859, commonly known as the Carrington event, which we discuss here all the time with Dr. Paul Laviolette. But these apparently caused few major problems on the planet. What makes today's situation so different from that of 90-some or 150 years ago? In the 1921 Great Geomagnetic Storm, which was 50% weaker than the Carrington event, was about nine decades ago. And that was the last extreme geomagnetic storm that the planet saw. Now, the Carrington event was kind of like the granddaddy of all solar storms in, in recorded history. And that happened in 1859, 160 years ago, approximately. So what we're seeing is we've seen two extreme geomagnetic events in the last 160 years, which... and Looking at ice core samplings, the indi scientists indicate that that's roughly the, the average what we're going to see on our planet. So that's where they came up the one in eight every decade. So basically, it's been nine decades since the last extreme geomagnetic solar storm. And I'll explain what that is in a moment. And it's been, uh, and we have a one in eight chance every decade. So essentially, we're living on borrowed time right now where we're looking at 
uh, it could happen anytime. It could happen in another hundred years, but it could happen next month. We just don't know. It's like a crap shot. It's like rolling the dice. So what is an extreme geomagnetic event? Well, when the sun burps, it, it sends this like huge coronal mass ejection. It's like a big burp and a bunch of hot sun plasma gases go flying out into space like a thousand times faster than our rockets fly. And they head towards, most of the time they head away from planet Earth, but on occasion when this coronal mass ejection happens, it hits the planet. Now, if it's not a huge ejection, then we get a nice northern lights or southern light shore, aurora borealis. And occasionally you get a really big one that hits their planet like in 1921 or 1859. So what happened in 1859, Carrington event? Well, the sky lit up from the North Pole to Hawaii and Puerto Rico, and it lit up from the South Pole all the way to American Samoa. So the entire planet was lit up at night, like blood red, orange, golden green streaks. I mean, just an incredible light show all night long. Now, back in 1859, we didn't have an electric grid. In fact, the only thing that was electrified was the telegraph. And so it did disrupt telegraph communications. A bunch of places were able to disconnect their batteries from the telegraphs and run their telegraphs just on induced currents that were happening from the geomagnetic storm. And a few telegraph stations burned down. Well, in 1921, what happened? Well, 1921, about 50% weaker than 1859, um, Penn Central Station in New York City burned down. You know, big, big train station. I was just there last week, big giant train station. It burned to the ground. And, you know, some other telegraphs and places burned to the ground. But it wasn't a really huge problem because in 1921, there was no internet. There were no nuclear power plants. There was no interconnected grid across the country. There was just individual electrified cities and electrified installations. And so the geomagnetic storm caused some of those to burn down and some of them to fry. But but they were very robust by modern standards. They had big fat wires. They were pretty primitive electronics. So it wasn't a big deal. Well, you fast forward to today and what you've got is a very different story. Now we have a world that's highly electrified and interconnected. We have the worldwide grid, you know, the, the internet that connects everybody in the world or, or all the Western world, the high tech world. There are still people who are not on it. And all of that's much more fragile electronically for these solar storms. So what happens in a solar storm is you have this, this uh, huge mass of particles from the sun crashes into the, geomag the, the magnetic field around the Earth, and it induces these currents and eddy currents in the planet. And they, they come down into the power lines that connect the grid. And what's extremely vulnerable in our grid is we have something called extra high voltage transformers, where they step the volts up from 110 in your house to 350,000 to a million volts. And they do this so that they can transmit. You've seen those huge towers with, with power lines going like a mile between towers and going way above the ground. So they, they're able to use these extremely high voltages to transmit power long distances to connect the grid with relatively low um, efficiency losses. You know, whenever you transmit power, you lose a little bit along the way. So these giant towers and the power lines are stepped up to such high voltages so they don't lose a lot of money with efficiency losses. But the problem is that these transformers at each end that step it up to go the long distance and step it down to be to usable voltages, they're extremely vulnerable. 
So what happened is that some scientists said, hey, this is a real problem and let's study this. So the Department of Homeland Security and uh, the Department of Defense and Oak Ridge National Labs sponsored a study at Meditech Corporation where they did computer modeling. And they found that in a big geomagnetic storm, and they, they, they focused on the size of the 1921 one because they said the Carrington event's more like a 500-year event. But the 1921 one is more like an 80-year event. And it's been 90 years. So, so they focused on that one. They said, hey, that one happens pretty often. Like, you know, once every couple generations happens. And it's been two generations and more since the last one. So they looked at that and they determined that roughly 370 of these massive transformers would blow in the United States. And I asked the uh, John Kappenman, who's the author of the study, I asked him what he thought about worldwide. And he said, I don't know, I didn't study the world. And I said, well, what about 2,000? What does that seem like? He says, yeah, that seems like a pretty good number. So you say, okay, so what if a couple thousand transformers blow? You know, you just go to your hardware store and buy them, right? And it's like, well, no, you can't just go to your hardware store. These things, you have to shut down a freeway to deliver one of these. There's a three-year delivery time to get one. They are tens of millions of dollars each. They're 100 tons each. They're like 25 feet tall and 20 feet wide. And so, and the world capacity to make these is about 100 a year. In other words, right now, the, all, the, all the people in the world that makes these, these giant things, they make about 100 a year. So if 2,000 go down, that's like 20 years of manufacturing capacity. Say they could make 200 a year. That's 10 years of manufacturing to replace them. Okay, so let's see. Well, how often do these things blow? Well, every now and then they go down just from being old. And in the United States, our transformers are more vulnerable than most of the world because we finished upgrading. We started in like around 1970. We started upgrading the grid. And then around 2000, we pretty much finished off the plan of upgrading our grid. So a lot of our transformers are kind of getting old. So they're more susceptible to these power surges that, that can take them out. Well, back in 1989, there was a geomagnetic storm. It was strong. It was about 10%, one-tenth as strong as the 1921 Great Geomagnetic Storm. So the 1989 event was 10% of the strength of the storm that this study is based on. Well, what did that do? Well, it lit up the Northern Lights really amazing, and, it, and they had to reroute flights over the North Pole. And, and it turned out it blew up one of these transformers burned out in the province of Quebec. And it also burned one out at a, uh, at a nuclear power station in, I think it was New Jersey, and it blew one out in the UK. So it blew out three of these big transformers, and it caused some, some power blackouts temporarily in the East Coast. But it turns out that in Quebec, that in the first 30 seconds of the 1989 storm, the Quebec grid experienced 15 simultaneous failures, one of which was this massive transformer. So the unsurprising result was a province-wide blackout. So the entire province of Quebec, which is pretty huge, but not that heavily populated, except for you know Quebec City and Montreal and you know a few places. So it 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 blew out for like nine hours. Six million people had no power, and a few you know some of those people had no power for a couple of days. But that's just one transformer. Now imagine 370 of these going out in the United States at once, and imagine that it's going to be months to years before they get them replaced. For instance, in 2003, I think, it might have been 2006, but, uh, oh yeah, it is 2006. In South Africa, they had another geomagnetic storm, and it blew out one in Sweden, but for some reason, it really hit the South African grid heavily. Now, it wasn't as strong as the 
1989 storm, but it was longer in duration. And for some reason, it induced these currents in South Africa. Now, normally, they think of places that are close to the equator as much safer from geomagnetic storms. But the South African event showed that that's not exactly the case. Because when you think about like a, like if you take a horseshoe magnet and you stick it into some sand in a sandbox, the iron filings are going to stick and clump on the north and south pole, the horseshoe magnet. And there's going to be no filing sticking around the center of the magnet. So similarly, when you have an EMP, which is kind of a, an artificial, um, that's an electromagnetic pulse from a nuclear device going off. That's kind of like an, some people call solar storms as natural EMPs and, uh, and uh, you know, nuclear devices as man-made EMPs. So anyway, when they did EMP tests, they found back in 1961 before the, and before the, test ban treaty, above ground test ban treaty went into effect, both the United States and the Soviet Union tested nuclear devices above ground blasts specifically, you know, suborbital blasts specifically designed for EMP. And they found that the EMP effect on Johnston Island, which is about 900 miles south of Honolulu, was roughly one quarter of the EMP effect that the Soviets saw in their test over Kazakhstan. So, you know, so we've got some experience with EMPs, and we get some ancient experience with solar storms, but we don't have much really real life modern experience. So, so what? Do, so what's the consequence? I mean, imagine that you step out one day at night, and you look up, and you see the just most amazing, awesome light show you've ever seen in your life. Like the sky is blood red and orange, and there's shimmering waves of fluorescent green and yellow and just like curtains of light and it's just awesome and incredible and you can see this light show really really well because the other thing that's happened is there are no lights on in your city right exactly and there's no lights on all across north america and there's no lights all across most of the northern and southern hemisphere except for the deep tropical zones and then you go next day and you think wow this is pretty awesome i wonder when the power is going to come back on you go out the next day and there's no power and there's no internet. And what else is happening? Well, initially your phones work because they have three-day backup batteries at the telephone company switching stations. So in three hours' time, your cell phones start to fail because the power for the cell towers, the relay towers, starts failing in three hours. In three days, your regular phones have failed. In about three days to a week, the police stations and the hospitals have run out of backup fuel, and they're not operating anymore. Uh, the very next day, the there's no more water in the tap because all of the elevated reservoirs can't be refilled with uh, by pressure pumps. You know, pumping water. The sewage plant plants stop treating. So imagine now you're going out to Park Avenue or Broadway in New York City, and there's raw sewage coming up out of all of the manhole covers because the sewage in the town has no place to go. There's no pumps to pump it to get it back to the sewage treatment plant. But, of course, it doesn't keep coming out because there's no water to keep flushing after a little while because all of the pressurized reservoirs and elevated reservoirs, you know, the water towers and things, have run out of water too. So the elevators have stopped working. The refrigerators have stopped working. The food is starting to rot. We now have a three-day supply of food for every city in this country. It used to be that there was a month's worth of supplies stored in warehouses in and around every major metropolitan area. 
And that was pre-internet days. But, you know, now the world gets better and things improve, right? And What was that, there. Matt? What was that? Because of just-in-time inventory and technology? Yeah, just-in-time okay. inventory and technology. It's like now the food you're eating on Friday night was probably on a truck the week before being delivered to the store you bought it from. You know, so so in the old days, like I said, you had warehouses and you had paper, you know, people managed inventories by going out and, and looking and manually doing inventories and looking at stock and saying, okay, this is getting a little low. Let's order a bunch more and, you know, build up our stocks and all of that. Nowadays, it's all just in time. It's all coordinated on the internet and on computers and it's pretty heavily automated and people do very little, you know, they barcode in stuff and the computer tracks everything going in and coming and they kind of update their inventories manually every now and then to correct for the inevitable errors. But, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty automated and pretty fast and pretty efficient. But the problem is that there's like very little slack built into the system now. I mean, to save money and cut costs, you know, cut out paying all that warehouse space and all that size and, you know, paying for that inventory that you're not using constantly. It's, it's all cut down to the minimum and computers and internet lets us do that. But when it's cut to the minimum, it means that we're SOL, that uh, when things stop running, if you have not stored your own supplies, unless you've got a, unless you want to go out and shoot somebody or rob somebody to get some supplies, then you're just plain not going to have any. No matter how much money you got, you're, you know, you're going to be out of luck. Well, you know, money and, and gold and tradable things, I mean, you can barter and trade for people who do have stuff if you're lucky enough to have that, but better to think ahead. So, um you know, one of the, some people say, well, you know, I, I don't have a lot of money to buy gold and silver and diamonds and jewels. And, and most of us don't, me included. So, uh, you know, they, they think, but most people can afford some basics like some uh, whole grain wheat stored in containers, some beans, uh, you know, some canned food, things like that. That's relatively cheap. And so when, when things get really scary, I mean, let me, let me just give you a little story that, that helps illustrate the value of pre you know pre disaster and post disaster what things cost so my wife was uh, a dutch immigrant and she grew up in the bay area after immigrating from holland when she was a little girl with her parents and they had a bunch of dutch indonesian immigrant friends and uh, her mom was indonesian her father was dutch and indonesia used to be a dutch colony and so they had this wonderful friend named d and she and and her husband albert came from a, a village in Indonesia and they'd had a little farm and they came to this country with a little bag of jewels. They had diamonds and emeralds and, and rubies and gold in this little bag. And it helped buy them a house and get established, bought their tickets here. And you, you'd say, well, well, how does some simple hill people, you know, farmers come to have this bag of diamonds and emeralds and rubies and gold? Well, in, in the Japanese occupation during World War II, people were starving and down in Indonesia. And Dee and her husband, Albert, had a little farm and they had food. So a bag of vegetables or a sack of rice was worth a diamond or an emerald or a ruby pried out of somebody's necklace or bracelet or ring. So think about it. Today... You know, you buy an awful lot of 
stored food with a single diamond or you know diamond or emerald of good size. But when people are starving, you know, it's pretty much a one-to-one trade there. So, so just just something to think about. That's the value of stuff when things are falling apart versus the value of stuff before things have fallen apart. Now, we think of financial collapse, and many people say, you know, Mel, that's not going to happen because we have a, you know, central banking system, the Federal Reserve, they can just continue pumping money. That is unsustainable. And I'm sure you you have to agree with that. It, it is unsustainable. Now we have the BRICS community, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa getting together. They want to de-dollarize the world. If that ever happens, that could actually cause our financial system to collapse here. The way I see it, the government is doing everything in their power to postpone that or to prevent that. But the end result will be the same, will be a, the grid going down. Is there a way to allow, and going back to the, the solar storms and EMPs, is there a way to allow electrical electric utilities to operate through solar storms? Is that possible, and how much would that cost? Yeah, the, the electric utilities, well, they can't really fully operate during the solar storm, but they could protect their critical equipment from both damage from either a man-made terrorist EMP or just some country decide, you know, Korea or China or Russia, they all have EMP weapons that, you know, nuclear weapons that they could, well, Korea is not a sure, but China and Russia certainly have those that they could launch an EMP attack on the United States. And without detonating a single nuclear weapon on the ground, they could cripple our economy, collapse the government, collapse the financial systems, you know, just almost instantaneously with an EMP. it turns out that for the price of approximately a single B-2 bomber, that's about $2 billion, that's chump change as far as the government is concerned, that they could install the equipment to protect the grid from collapse in the event of an EMP. It would protect these massive transformers from both EMP and solar storm. Now, there's, um, there's some good news, bad news differences between solar storms and EMP. So, and for instance, in the solar storm, um, it's not going to affect your small electronics. This, the solar storm does uh, uh, causes this kind of long, slow burn that takes down the massive transformers that keep the grid operating. But it does not affect, at least according to scientists, I mean, we don't know for sure because it hasn't happened since 1921, but it, it indicates that a solar storm will not like mess up your computers directly. They just won't have any power to run them. But we're talking about an end of the world as we know it scenario that can be prevented for a couple billion dollars. I mean, a price of a single stealth bomber. It blows my mind that this has not been implemented right away because the government was worried. You know, scientists were warning people in the government that, hey, this is a real problem. And in the, you know, around 2008 or so, they sponsored a bipartisan uh, EMP commission. Uh, which studied this problem, and they concluded that, yes, this is a serious problem, an extreme problem, and it was headed by Dr. William Graham. I keep wanting to call him Billy Graham, but that's a different doctor. So Dr. William (laughs) Graham, I know, yeah, he's not the evangelist. Dr. William Graham is a man who was – he was the head – he was Ronald Reagan's chief science advisor for several years – and he was a key player. He has a PhD in physics and was a key player in the 
De Department of Defense nuclear program. So this guy's had over 30 years of experience in the nuclear program, and he's aging now. And, and I wanted to, to just read something that he said. He, he, uh, he came to the same conclusion that I did that we haven't talked about yet, but I'll introduce it with his conclusion. Uh, we independently came to the same conclusion, and, uh, I, and certainly, you know, I have an MIT degree, but I don't have the credentials that Dr. William Graham has, uh, you know, science advisor, PhD physics, and uh, 30 years in the DOD nuclear program. And he said, and this is received on October 3rd of 2011, and it was directed to the U.S. Nuclear, Tur nuclear Regulatory Commission chairman. And then it was copied to Stephen Chu, the chairman of secretary for Obama, um, Holden, Office of Science and Technology, a number of senators and a number of uh, House of Representatives people, both Republicans and Democrats. So, so it was sent around to a lot of people. And in this letter, he said, I'm just going to select a little couple pieces. He said, this letter is to urge you as you form plans to protect U.S. nuclear reactors from Fukushima-type disasters where electric power to support nuclear plant operations is lost for a protracted period to take account the very real threats from a great geomagnetic storm and from a nuclear EMP attack. Then a paragraph down, he goes on to say, such an event, speaking of the Carrington event or the 1921 great geomagnetic storm, such an event could also cause operators of the 108 nuclear power plants in the United States to lose the ability to perform a safe controlled shutdown of their power reactors producing a Fukushima-like disaster on a massive scale. So here, both he and I came to the same conclusion, and I'm kind of a little embarrassed how I came to the conclusion, but, <laughs> but uh, see, I was, when Fukushima happened, I had, two weeks before Fukushima, I had finished the next and last chapter in my new book, uh, When Disaster Strikes, and it was on EMP and solar storms. And, a, and three days before Fukushima, I finished the draft for the last chapter called The Unthinkable, Surviving a Nuclear Disaster. So at, when Fukushima happened, I got on about 25 radio shows. And, and on one show, I was talking about how the official um, explanation for the failures in Fukushima was that, you know, all nuclear, nuclear power plants designed to automatically go into emergency shutdown mode and disconnect from the grid when the grid goes down because uh, a nuclear power plant can't be feeding, you know, it's, it's generating huge amounts of energy and that energy has to go somewhere. And if the grid is down, then it can't go into the grid. And so basically they go into emergency shutdown mode, but it's not like flicking a switch in the wall. It's like they start slowing the reaction down. But that means that there's this massive amount of heat that's been ge being generated inside the core of the reactor and normally that makes huge amounts of steam that runs steam turbines that creates a massive amount of energy that gets electric power out of a nuclear power plant. So when suddenly the grid goes down and it goes into shutdown mode, that heat has to go somewhere. And, it's, and it doesn't shut down instantly. It shuts down rather slowly. And it takes they have to keep cooling those rods for three to five years. And if they lose cooling, then they'll start to burn up. Even, even three years later, they can have a meltdown, though it's a slower meltdown. It'll still melt down. It'll just take a lot longer. So what happened then is when, when the earthquake hit, the grid went down, and automatically there was four out of six reactors that were operating at the time at Fukushima. Two of them were already shut down for refueling. The fuel only lasts a year or two. It's, it's, not, it's not something that lasts forever. So they have to keep refueling these things every couple of years or so. 
So two were shut down for refueling. So the grid goes down. All the four reactors that are operating go into emergency shutdown mode. Well, 20 minutes later, the tsunami comes along, and five out of the six backup generator banks that were designed to provide emergency power to keep those gen- those pumps pumping wa- cooling water through the reactors in the event of a reactor shutdown, well, five out of the six backup generator banks got wiped out by the tsunami. Only one of the six ones, the one at reactor number six, was built on the uphill side. The other ones were built on the downhill side. Kind of hard to imagine. I mean, you know, we're smart engineers, but I can be tunnel visioned, and you know, a lot of these other guys are too. There's cave paintings around Fukushima showing massive tsunamis, you know, in cave paintings. And yet here they go, and they've got all these generators on the ocean side, and the wave comes along and wipes them out. So within 15 minutes, the first two reactors at Fukushima were in total meltdown. You know, they were, their, their cores were blown. They're, they were worthless pieces of toxic waste that are going to be toxic for 100,000 years. And number five... They managed, you know, heroic efforts on the parts of nuclear plant workers there at the plants were able to shunt power from number six to number five, and they got a partial core meltdown in number five. So number five is still ruined and will never work again, but it wasn't the full disaster that number one and two were, or, or maybe they're three and four, I forget which, which numbers they were, but two of them were totally destroyed. So what happens then? Well, you know, these, these reactors are encased was six feet of concrete and steel that's designed to hold all the nasty stuff in in the event of a failure. Well, it's not like they get to, to study real failures very often. I mean, they hope that they're never going to have a failure. So, you know, these engineers are smart guys and they do their best. But what really happened in those first two reactors is the they lost all the power they, they, to the pumps. So the water ran dry. The reactors start superheating because there's no flowing water through there to keep the, taking the heat out of these out of the reactor core, and it superheated the steam in the water, and then it starts dissociating into hydrogen and oxygen gas, and those hydrogen and oxygen gases boiled up into the top of the reactor vessel, and they recombined and, and they caused an explosion. And we all, most of us, most of your listeners probably saw those pictures of explosions happening and big steam steam, explosions. steam and, and black smoke and stuff like that coming out of there. The right. steam, ex- steam Yeah, steam explosions. Yeah. Yeah. And so it fractured the reactor containment vessel, which is supposed to, you know, be super strong and hold all that stuff in. Well, it obviously didn't do its job. Okay. You know, like I said, they don't get to study real failures very often because they hope they never happen. So, you know, it blows stuff up all over. Now, here's what a lot of people don't realize. That on top of those buildings that housed those two reactors that blew up are something called spent fuel rod ponds. See, we've never figured out a solution in nuclear power plants for what to do with the nuclear waste. I mean, in Finland, I saw a movie there. They've had people working on this massive like thing 10,000 feet in the earth to store the fuel rods for 100,000 years. And they're trying to figure out like what language, you know, how can we tell people that this is dangerous because you know <laughs> we can't assume that they're going to speak Finnish or English in a hundred thousand years. So, you know, what do we do and how do we do this? So, and I saw this film and it talked about this guy, a workman on them, saying, "My father worked on this project. I'm working on this project, and my son will be finishing this project." 
It's that long of a term. And we don't even have a project like that going in the United States. This is Finland. So what they do with these spent fuel rods, like I said, every couple of years, the reactors, you know, the fuel rods start losing their gas and losing their punch. So they got to pull them out and they replace them. So what do they do? Well, they don't really have a good permanent solution. So most of the time they store them in these giant swimming pools. They call it spent fuel rod ponds. It's basically 25 foot deep pools. And they have specifically designed racks to hold the rods far enough apart from each other that they don't start having a critical nuclear reaction forming between the rods. So when the rods like get jumbled in together, like in a failure next to each other, then they can start getting a critical reaction and it can cause them to burn up. It can cause them to turn into a Chernobyl-like burning fire that pollutes the atmosphere and, and blows radioactive smoke all over the planet. So here you have in Fukushima, you had these two buildings that were blown really bad. Uh, they were still standing. But when you, if you go to Washington'sBlog.com and go like spent fuel ponds and Google spent fuel ponds in Washington's blog, then you'll see these pictures, which are pretty, they're really alarming. They're really scary. They show these buildings where all of the really cool stuff, and they have a before and after. They have a video of like these massive cranes that go in and pull the fuel rods out of the reactor cores and, and then put them in and, and use mechanical couplings because they're so radioactive that, that robots will get, the electronics and robots will be fried. So they've got to be all mechanical coupling things where the robotic uh, actuators are are distant from the radiation so they don't get cooked by the radiation and and they lift these rods and they put them in like a big giant swimming pool kind of a doughboy pool on a crane and they pick up this crane they move it over and then they pull the rods out of the little pool and they put them down in these racks inside the the uh, spent fuel ponds uh, buried under 20 feet of water so that workmen can be around the fuel ponds and not be killed by the radiation immediately. They've got to be encased in 20 feet of water to, to take all those neutrons and gamma rays uh, down so that it doesn't kill everybody around there. And they're still walking around in radiation suits, but you know, without the water, they would go, it would even kill them inside the radiation suits. So here you've got like another 10 Chernobyl's worth of fuel sitting on top of these two blown-up reactors on these buildings that are extremely precarious. And all of that wonderful, shiny cranes and mechanical stuff that you see in the pictures, the before pictures, is all just a massive jumble of garbage and debris in the fuel ponds on top of the fuel rods. And and that's what, you know, one of the reasons, you know, I wondered, you know, I was seeing that, you remember when Fukushima was happening? Sure. And do you remember seeing like those big fire hose, like hoses going up on top of the buildings? Do you mm -hmm. remember seeing that? Yeah. yeah. And I remember thinking like, what's that all about? I mean, they're not going to cool the fuel rods inside the dome. What they're doing is see the spent fuel rods will boil those ponds dry. And once Just replacing water. Yeah. So if they don't keep replacing the water, those will boil dry. And when they boil dry, what happens is, is they start overheating. Now, these spent fuel rods are encased in a material called zirconium. Now, zirconium, see, plain steel won't work because it is so susceptible to embrittlement from higher levels of radiation that steel encasement on the fuel rods would shatter. They'd break and they'd fall apart. So they encase them in something called zirconium, which is very resistant to high levels of radiation. But when zirconium gets really hot, it burns like a Roman candle. 
Like, do you remember, did you do chemistry class? You ever burn magnesium foil in chemistry class? Yes, yes, right. Yeah, you know, it's so bright, like you have to shield your eyes or you'll burn your retinas. And I mean, incredibly bright. Yeah, think fireworks. Yeah, think fireworks. Now, think about all those. You have 10 Chernobyl's worth of spent fuel rods on top of the two reactors in Fukushima. And if those ponds went dry, or if there was a massive earthquake that knocked them to the ground and they lost the fuel, they start burning out of control, just like the fire at Chernobyl. Now, most of, almost all of the radiation in Fukushima has gone into the water, into the ocean, and into the ground. Only a few percent's gone in the atmosphere, whereas in Chernobyl, all of it was going in the atmosphere and spreading around the planet. So think about that 10 Chernobyl's worth of material there that is just they're on pins and needles hoping that they can develop the technologies to unload the garbage out of those ponds and get those fuel rods safely stored before the next massive earthquake or the next something that, that causes them to go dry and they start burning like Fukushima, like uh, Chernobyl did. What's the status? What's the status of Fukushima today? Well, I haven't kept up really well, but I understand that they did a massive they, – they had – They're really worried because the groundwater was so heavily polluted that water, tons and tons and tons of highly contaminated seawater is flowing, you know, that that they've used to cool Fukushima has been flowing back into the ground and back into the ocean. So what they've developed is this like giant refrigerator banks where they're trying to do an ice barrier all around Fukushima. So in other words, they're putting like huge refrigerator coils into the ground to try and make an ice dam so that it keeps all of the water in Fukushima and doesn't keep flowing into the ocean. And I understand that they had uh, technical problems with that and it wasn't performing as they wanted to. And, you know, basically we're saying it was failing. Whether they're going to fix it or not, I don't know. Um, I do understand that they have managed to get a few of the fuel rods faster than I anticipated, that they've developed the robotics and technology to get in some of the debris and some of the fuel rod. But what I've heard is that basically it's a 10-year project to get rid of the – to be able to unload the debris from these fuel ponds and get the fuel rods out. Now, I don't think they're ever going to be able to get the fuel rods out of the cores of the reactor. I think that they're just going to end up sealing them up with concrete. I'm kind of surprised that they didn't just do the sarcophagus. Like in, in Chernobyl, what they did was basically a couple hundred guys sacrificed their life in Chernobyl where they flew helicopter runs and they dropped, you know, tons and tons of earth and rock and concrete to encase Chernobyl with this with this kind of big dome over it of earth and rock and concrete. And most of those workers either lost their lives or were debilitated for life with they call it Chernobyl AIDS. They're basically sick and can't work the rest of their life. And so there was a couple hundred that lost their lives directly. What people don't realize is that there was close to the epistemological studies that were done by the science, you know, some Russian academic science uh, program studied the world in terms of cancer rates before and Chernobyl AIDS. I mean, basically, if you go through these towns in the Ukraine and different places downwind from Chernobyl, they, they say the Chernobyl necklace is on everybody. And what is that? Well, Chernobyl necklace, that's thyroid tumors. Like you just look around the village and everyone's mm. got thyroid tumors. And there's kids born with six legs and, you know, no heads. And I mean, just like deformities all over. People are sick. They have Chernobyl AIDS. You know, there's hundreds of thousands of people with Chernobyl AIDS, which is basically, it's like AIDS, only it's caused by radiation and not by the HIV virus. You know, what if they, they have used, function. what if they have used iodine? 
Well, iodine would help. And, and one of the things, other things that they developed that are very helpful and they developed in the Soviet Union is um, they developed something called motophilin. And I actually take that every day. And I take about four capsules of motophilin every day. And it was developed in the Soviet Union. And what it is, is it's a juiced uh, kelp. They found that the kelp is, itself is not very digestible. Like you can't just go out and eat, chew on kelp like a cow and get much out of it. So what they found is they juice and dry it and they get an extract and it chelates to the heavy metals in the body. So not only does it remove like lead and mercury from the body, and it also provides tons of micronutrients to the body, you know, very, very good in bioaccessible iodine, much better than taking regular iodine. You get your iodine from motophilin. It's very bioaccessible. How do you spell it? It's M-O-D-I-F-I-L-A-N. And you can go to motophilin.com and, and look it up. And it's, there's a lot of good data on it. So they found that both things like uh, the motophilin was really good at helping to chelate and take things like strontium-90s and uraniums and plutoniums out of people's body. So they started developing natural chelating agents in the Soviet Union. They also use um, cilantro. You know, there's, uh, cilantro does it to a small extent and cracked wall chlorella which is an algae. Another, an, an algae is also pretty good at it. But my understanding is this motophilin, and there's probably similar products that are basically juiced kelp, it is really excellent. And the main thing, too, there is that you want to make sure that the source for the kelp is really good and clean because a lot of these original sources are now, like, polluted. There was a great Japanese source, but it's like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take kelp, you know, anything made from kelp outside of Japan after Fukushima. You know, you got to get it from someplace far away in the world. Unless you want to become fluorescent. I mean, uh, right. yeah, fluorescent. <laughs> yeah, you want to light up like a Christmas tree, right? Right. <laughs> so, um, so there's some different products out there, but you really want to start thinking, think beyond just plain iodine. Like iodine is good for protecting your thyroid, but if you can get iodine and other things in a bioavailable compound like motophilin, then not only are you protecting your thyroid, you're also dumping these heavy metals out of your body and providing micronutrients to the body. So it's, so it's a really, I mean, in, in today's post-Fukushima day, uh, you know, I think everybody's survival kit should have it in there a good supply of it, and you should be taking I recommend taking it every day. Now, I don't make any money off of it. So, you know, it's not like I'm telling you this because I'm selling it. Sure. Um, you know, I'm not making a dime off of this. Now, so so anyway, I kind of got off a little off track because it's very important to understand the dangers of Fukushima and what happened. So here I am on the radio show talking in first part of the program about Fukushima and how how it was the failure of the backup power systems to keep the generate to keep the generators going to keep the pumps flowing to keep the reactors cool that caused them to blow their tops and then in the next half of the show i was talking about emp and solar storms and long-term grid collapse so a caller calls up and he says well mr stein i don't have an mit degree like you do but you know from what you said about the failures in Fukushima and what you said about long-term grid collapse and no oil refineries working, no, you know, no oil trucks moving, the whole, the, you know, collapse and chaos in the United States and over much of the world from a solar storm and over a smaller part of the world from an EMP. He said, what do you think is going to happen to our nuclear power plants in the event of a massive solar storm? And my jaw just drops like, oh my God, I can't believe 
I wrote these two chapters two weeks apart, and I didn't connect the dots. I just It just blew my mind that I didn't connect the dots. So I realized what it is is we have the, the uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission mandates that each of our nuclear power plants – I've heard 104 uh, – Dr. William Graham says 108, so you know somewhere a little over 100, 100 plus nuclear power plants. They're all required to have a week's worth of backup fuel on hand because you know the grid never goes down in the United States for very long, right? You know it's like, hey, no problem. We can always get some backup fuel in there. We can always get the grid up, so you know a week should be just fine. Well, you know, in the solar storm, we're talking months to years to get things back up and running over much of the country, and in an EMP, you're talking much more severe destruction over a much smaller area. So in an EMP, you're not talking the grid going down all over the world. And, let, and so let's talk about kind of the difference between EMPs and solar storms because there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation out there. You know, and, and what I'm going to do is relate information based on reading government documents on the EMP simulation tests and on the Joint Bipartisan EMP Commission and uh, I'm speaking personally with uh, a man from a company that has the largest EMP simulator in the world and does a lot of DOD work. And he's actually a guy who's developed this vacuum tube technology that can sh shunt massive amounts of power in almost instantaneously around these transformers to protect them from destruction in an either e EMP or solar storm event. So, okay. So what's the difference between an EMP and a solar storm? Well, an EMP is when... Somebody who wants to put it to the United States launches an air-based missile and blows it off well above the surface of the Earth, like typically five miles to 100 miles above the planet of the Earth. And essentially what happens is these gamma rays go out in the line of sight and they interact with the atmosphere and they cause these highly charged particles uh, to interact with our magnetic field and causes you know huge electromagnetic pulse. So there's three different... Um, Effects and the higher altitude affects more area. That's correct. The okay. higher you can get that missile up, the further the line of sight goes. So the larger the area of destruction you're going to see. So, for instance, if you had, say, they bought, say, some you know, rich Muslim fanatic, you know, Arab sheik funds a group and. They buy a suitcase bomb from, you know, Kazakhstan or, so, you know, a failed former state of the Soviet Union. And then they buy like a Scud missile for 10 million bucks on the black market. And they hire some Pakistani engineers or something to, um, you know, to, to reprogram everything and to, and to get this going. And they launch it off of, a, off of a junk freighter on the east coast of the United States. And it goes up and it blows up like five, you know, and, and so here you've got a small suitcase bomb and Scud missile. You're looking at probably about a 500-mile circle. So that's enough to destroy, to make, cause massive destruction to our grid, to our infrastructure within about a 500-mile circle. So that's enough to take out Washington, D.C., New York, Boston, you know, the entire highly populated, uh, very dense business and government center in the northeastern United States. Okay, so what's this effect? Now, if you had a big one, say the Soviet Union or China um, or Pakistan, you know, like there's a lot of fundamental uh, Muslim fanatic uh, infiltration within the military and the government in Pakistan. So, you know, there could very well be uh, an inner cell that 
does this on their own, you know, a rogue cell within the within Pakistan. It, it's very conceivable. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm not saying Pakistan's all bad guys. You know, they're they're allies in the United States, but there's definitely in, a strong infiltration of of the Muslim fanatic, you know, ISIS types within the Pakistani government and the military. And so it's very conceivable that this could happen. So say one of these three countries, you know, China, Soviet Union, or Pakistan, um, got their hands on a big device. And you a mean big Russia. Device, yeah, to get it up high in altitude. And all three of these countries have that. You know, I mean, there's no question Pakistan, China, you know. I mean, India could do it too. I don't think they're going to, but India could do it too. Uh, France could do it. Uh, Germany could do it. You know, all of these places it could come from. They all have things. So, so now imagine a thousand mile circle, fifteen hundred mile circle, and if you draw that circle, draw a circle on the map of the United States, it will go through Quebec, it'll go around Chicago, and it'll go all the way through most of Texas and it'll and through down to Miami. So. Three quarters, roughly two thirds to three quarters of the population of the United States, probably three quarters of our nuclear power plants are within that circle. I mean, that's a really big, big area. That's most, that would do most of the, you know, high tech zones of the country, except for like Colorado zone and California and the Pacific Northwest. You know, I mean, that it's like one single device is zapping most of the United States industrial populated and business and financial and government centers, all essentially gone instantaneously. So what does so there's three different categories of effects. There's an E1 effect, E2, and E3. So the E1 is it goes out like speed of light, like fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a blink of an eye. This this effect goes out. And what's that effect like? It's like it's like rubbing your feet on the carpet on a cold winter's day, opening up your computer and putting your finger out and sparking a bunch of the chips in your computer and saying, gee, I wonder what that did. So that's like a, a huge electrostatic effect that it goes instantaneously line of sight in nanoseconds. Like just, there's no way to react faster than, you know, as fast as that with any kind of electronics or switching equipment or anything. It's just too fast to do anything. Then there's the E2 effect that goes out and that's like, it happens in the next half second, a couple seconds. And that's like, 50,000 lightning bolts or, or 1,000 lightning bolts happening every few square miles all over the affected zone. Now, we have a lot of surge protectors to protect our electronic devices, but the E1 effect will have deactivated most of those things. So imagine now you get all your electronics in your house hooked into the grid, and but you get rid of all your surge protectors, and there's a huge lightning storm going on outside, like, like you know, just a just an amazing lightning storm going on outside. That's the E2 effect with no protection for most of your stuff. Then the E3 effect happens from like a couple seconds to 15 minutes. And that's a long, slow burn. And that's essentially the identical effect to a solar storm. So a solar storm is basically an E3 effect that's all over most of the northern and southern hemispheres, except for the deep tropical zones. Whereas the E3 effect is just over the affected areas. So essentially that fries the massive transformers that our grid interconnects our grid and that our grid's dependent upon is the E3 effect. So what does it do? Well, according to actual EMP simulation studies that have been done by sponsored by the Department of Defense, most of your small discrete electronics is going to survive. You know, I mean some of it won't. Some of it will lose chips, but things like your iPhones and, you know, transistor radios, a lot of that stuff is going to survive. Um, contrary to popular opinion, uh, and in the books that were written like one second after and stuff like that, 
most of your cars running down the road will still run. They'll have a lot of glitches in them, but they'll still operate. Apparently, in the EMP simulation, about 15% of the cars that were operating failed to operate. I mean, they'd just die wherever they were on the road. They'd just stop running. And, you know, most of the others will have some kind of electronic glitches. But see, cars have sparky things going on in them all the time. And they're also isolated by rubber tires. They're an isolated unit. So, you know, they're fairly robust, even modern cars. So not all of them will fail like Hollywood tells us. Right. Non except, here's a caveat. They're super EMP weapons that have been developed by the United States, and we can only assume China and Russia have them too. So if you have a nuclear device that is a super EMP device, like not just a regular old nuclear bomb, but ones that's specifically designed for maximum EMP effect, I've been told it may have closer to that Hollywood effect. But but the regular old plain vanilla nuclear devices, you're talking like most of them will work. But here's the downside. Essentially, 100% failure in all of the critical digital control systems that makes our world run. So basically, all any digital electronics that's controlled with a, that's that's hooked up to other stuff with a significant amount of wire, that wire is going to act like antennas, and it's going to suck the EMP effect in, and it's going to fry that stuff. So what does that mean? That means all your programmable logic controllers, PLCs, all your Digital control systems, DCSs, all of your SCADAs, remote sensing control and data acquisition systems, all of the stuff that makes the internet run, that makes our nuclear power plants run, that makes our oil refineries run, that makes our water treatment plants and sewage plants run, all of that stuff is going to fail. All the stuff that our modern world totally depends upon, that's going to fail. Totally fried. And so much of that's going to be fried that there aren't enough spare parts in the world to fix that for many years. I mean, you know, you'll be able to, it's going to be like, like triage in a hospital where, you know, there's been a plane crash and there's like 200 people in various levels of life and death. And there's going to be so much blood and disarray everywhere that the doctors have to say that, you know, forget about these, forget about these, forget about these, forget about these, deal with that, deal with that, deal with that. So in other words, it's going to be massive scale of chaos and destruction and most of our nuclear power plants in the affected zone will probably be blowing up fukushima style within 15 minutes now there's a fix for this too okay so hold on hold that hell that because we have to separate both segments why don't you give us the fix when we come back and i also have to say you know when we think of nuclear weapons and you know, if, if Russia or the United States, they have this mutually agreed destruction, mad agreement. Right now, I really only see nuclear weapons as a deterrent, as a, you know, to put fear out there when in reality, what they probably use, if they were to, if they wanted to conquer one another, they probably would use these super EMPs because that would at least keep the assets where they should be, with the exception of what you're saying about the nuclear power plants. But we have we can discuss all of this when we come back. Also, you mentioned the B-2 bomber, $2.1 billion, I believe it's cost. It's worth more than its weight in gold. That's nothing, nothing. If they were able to invest this in comparison, what would the cost of an extended blackout be for, say, 130 million Americans. We'll get all of these questions answered when we come back. How can people buy all your books and learn more about your work, Matt? Well, uh, you can buy my books 
at all the usual places, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstores. I always like to promote people buying local to keep the money in your community. And if they don't stock it, then they can have it in a couple of days. It's stocked at all the major distributors. You can also go to my website, whentechfails.com. And that has a huge amount of totally free practical how-to information. If you click on articles, plus on the right column of that website, there's links to purchase my books. And I get a modest Amazon associate fee off of that that helps support the website and helps support what I'm doing. I don't really make any money off of it. It just helps keep things going. And then underneath that, there's a large number of reference books, other books that I highly recommend. And there's links to those. And there's a great article called uh, Building the Ultimate Survival Kit that has similar links into it. That's listed on the homepage. Click on more and the whole article opens up and has links to buy all kinds of highly recommended stuff that you can trust is really good quality stuff. And again, I don't, I'm not selling anything directly on that. Now, on my other site, mattstein.com, that's my author site, Matt with one T, M-A-T-S-T-E-I-N.com. There's links to buy all the books. Plus, if you want to buy a book directly from me, Cost more than on Amazon, but you can get a signed, personalized copy directly from me. And those links are only on my author's website, mattstein.com. And and so, you know, basically, that gives you all the information that uh, to buy my books or buy recommended things that I that you can trust are really good because I know that it's it's good stuff. I use it myself. Highly recommended stuff on there. You know, instead of trying to figure it, things out for yourself, just click on the links and and you know it's going to be good quality. And when we come back, we also discuss a financial collapse scenario. What if we woke up in the morning and found out that our dollar is now worth 10 cents? Government revenue would stop. Utility company employees won't go to work. Police won't go to work. Firemen won't go to work. The grid goes down. Also, what about a pandemic? Right now we have Ebola, which thankfully, as of right now, is not airborne. But what if an airborne virus where to surface all of a sudden what would happen how can we prepare and mitigate the situation all of this when we come back with my special guest matthew stein don't go anywhere this is mel fabregas and you're listening to veritas we'll be right back thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview to listen to the rest go to veritasradio.com and subscribe you will receive your login immediately We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Enjoy. Enjoy. 